Well, here's a good question. What are your plans? Now, I don't mean what you're doing later today or tonight, or what you're doing this week, or maybe some vacation time that you have coming up. I'm talking about what are your plans for your life? I mean, really, that's a, an important question. And if you're young, you've probably heard that a lot lately. I remember when I graduated from high school, I was getting that question from everybody. Larry, what are your plans? What are you gonna do with your life? What's next for you? And I remember thinking at that time, well, number one, I didn't really like academics all that much, so I really wasn't planning to go that route. But I also had a real love for people. And so I had de decided that my plan was to become a firefighter. And I thought that was a great plan. I would go to a junior college, I would take fire science courses, I would uh, eventually become a firefighter, I would continue to volunteer that way at my local uh, church, I would be involved and it would be great. That's what my plan was. And now don't get me wrong, I left a lot of room for God to move and do things and I was open to whatever God wanted to do, but I had my plan. Woody Allen is known for saying, if you wanna make God laugh, tell him about your plans. Now Woody Allen isn't a theologian by any means, but at least he's got one thing straight. When it comes to making plans, we really know who's ultimately in charge. So there I was, barely 20 years of age, working out my plan. I was involved in the fire department. I was a volunteer firefighter. I was taking courses and almost finished with my fire science classes, involved in the academy at the College of San Mateo. And I was volunteering in my local church and doing so well when along came this young man named Billy. Billy was in our high school ministry, and Billy had a lot of things going on in his life. In fact, he was involved in some really, really dark things. And over the course of knowing Billy in just a few months' time, I could see the power of darkness, really what the Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians 6, where he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And that was Billy's life. Billy was really, really into some dark stuff. And over the time I got to know Billy, I introduced him to the life of Jesus, the life that Jesus had for him. And there was a huge struggle in his life. And I don't have time to go into the whole struggle, but I will gladly say that Billy made his peace with God and that Billy came to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And it happened in somewhat of a dramatic fashion. And I can remember after that period of time, sitting in the little sanctuary of that little Baptist church across the bay, and I remember thinking for the very first time in my life, wow, God is so amazing. God is so big. God was bigger than anything I thought he could possibly be. And so maybe the better question is not what is your plan, but what is God's plan for your life? And that's the question we want to look at today here in this last installment of our Boundless series. We've been learning about the amazing, sovereign, boundless God that Scripture reveals to us and that we experience in our lives when we come to know Him. 
And one of the outshoots that happens when we come to know this boundless God is that we start seeing that our plans don't compare with his plans, that he's got plans that are bigger and greater and more magnificent than any of us can imagine. And it may come as a shock to some of us today to hear these words, that God has the most amazing plan, the biggest plans possible for your life. Shockingly big, unimaginably big. And that's what we want to talk about today. And we're going to learn all this from a passage in the New Testament, the book of Acts chapter 9. If you have a Bible, I want you to find your way there, Acts chapter 9. Now, this is the story of uh, Saul, who becomes Paul in the New Testament. And he's, uh, it's his conversion story. And we're going to see from this story today a few things very powerful. And I want you just to follow along. I'm going to read verses 1 through 19. And we're going to look at these plans that God has for us, these big plans when we meet a big God. Verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that he would find anyone there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he would take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up, go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he couldn't see anything. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go! This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Well, this is an amazing story, isn't it? It's a story that maybe we're familiar with, the story of Saul becoming Paul, Saul having a conversion experience. But what I want us to pay attention to today in this big picture of meeting a boundless God, a sovereign God, and how his sovereignty and his bigness ushers us, sometimes compels us, moves us, sends us into the big plans he has for us. I want us to see this in all of what we've just read from three different perspectives. 
First, we're going to look at Paul's or Saul's transformation. Then we're going to look at Ananias's hesitation. And then we're going to look at God's expectation. Three perspectives on how a boundless God shows us the big plans for life. So the first thing I'm going to talk about really quickly is this idea of Saul's conversion experience, his transformation. And we see that there in verses 1 through 9 and verses 18 and 19 of the text. And what we want to look at quickly is that recognizing God's big plans for our lives starts the moment we surrender our life to him. It happens when we give our lives to Christ. That's when we start getting a vision for our life. Now, I've found in my life, and perhaps in yours, that there are usually three phases that we go through in coming to this place of surrender. And certainly we're not going to have the same story that Saul, who became Paul, had. But our stories are very compatible to his story in the following ways. First of all, I would say that we all experience, when coming to a place of surrender to God, we come to a place, what we call a, dis- a, ru- a disruptive phase. It's the disruptive phase is where God gets our attention. And I love verse 3. Do you see it there where it says, suddenly, as he was on his way to Damascus, suddenly this bright light shines around Saul. He's kind of moved off of center. Somehow his world is changing instantly around him. And there's a lot of things that move us off center in our life. This disruptive phase that happens to all of us in our journey to to faith in Christ This disruptive phase might be uh, the loss of a job. It might be uh, an economic problem, uh, a financial disaster. It might be a health diagnosis. It might be a relationship that's broken, a marriage that's fallen apart. It might be being a strained relationship with parents or with your children. Something that you thought was going in a good direction suddenly comes to a screeching halt. There's something new. And all of us have had this disruption in our lives at some point or another. And sometimes the disruption is actually good things. Uh, You get a promotion. You move to a new house. You've got a new child. There's your new marriage. Something has happened in your life that is a good thing. Good can also be disruptive. And God uses that too. But usually it's more on the negative side. And the disruption phase sets us into the next phase, which is what I call Uh, the discovery phase. The discovery phase has actually two parts. The first part is where God's going to deconstruct our worldview. And right there in the text, verses 4 and 5, God speaks to uh, Saul and and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now think about this. Saul knows this is the voice of God speaking to him. And for the first time in his life, he's wondering what in the world is happening here? God is actually deconstructing Saul's worldview, his theology, everything. He's breaking it down. And some of us have been through experiences in our lives where God is is going to uh, bring us into discovery. This is where God, we might call the soul-searching time of our life, where we start asking some hard questions. They're actually questions that God is asking, but we internalize them. Like, why is my life going this way? Why am I so dissatisfied with the way my life is right now? Why is life not working out the way I thought it was going to work out? Why is my life so miserable? Or whatever it is. And this is what I call the deconstructive, uh, the deconstructive part of our discovery phase. God is going to deconstruct our worldview. He's going to show us that life as we thought doesn't really work. 
But the beautiful thing about God is that then he enters, he ushers us into the next part of the discovery phase, and that is where we actually meet Jesus. So Saul asks God, who are you, Lord? And the Lord answers, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. (laughs) Now, I can't imagine, the text doesn't show us the shock of what would have happened in Saul's life. But can you imagine Saul's life is so turned upside down? He's gone from believing that God, in the way God is, and he's gone, uh, uh, believing, he's gone from a position of believing who God is to now a God that he doesn't understand. And he's gone to believing that Jesus was the enemy, so to speak, and someone that he should be putting uh, down and anyone who's following Jesus should be put away, persecuted, murdered. And now he's realizing that the God he believed in, the God he loved, the God that he was serving, was actually Jesus Christ. And we know that Jesus Christ is one with the Father. And we know from Scripture that one of the beautiful doctrines of our Scriptures is that there is one God manifest in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so as Saul was carrying out his relationship with God, he had no room for the person of Jesus, but Jesus is God. By the way, this is why we should be bold in sharing our faith with people. We should be bold in inviting people to church or inviting them online in this season, right? Because we don't know that if someone in their discovery phase is at a place where they need to be introduced to Jesus so that the the deconstruction can suddenly begin to have a construction where suddenly Jesus is introduced as the one who can make the difference in their lives. And I love how this goes because in the text, Jesus says, now get up, go to the city. Basically, you're going to go to the town and wait for further instructions. And Paul, I'm saying Paul, but you know it's Saul in the text. He has no clue. He can't see. He's being led by the hand into the city of Damascus. And he goes to this little house of Judas and not the Judas of the the 12, but a different Judas, obviously, in the town of Damascus on Straight Street. We've got a disruptive phase. We've got a discovery phase. But watch this. This is where we are poised for the discipleship phase. And, And I hope you're listening right now because the discipleship phase is where we actually place our faith and trust in this one named Jesus. And we begin our life with him. Now in verses 18 and 19 of Acts chapter 9, Ananias comes in and he says, Hey, you know, I'm the guy you saw in the vision. And I'm here to pray for you and lay my hands on you so that you can receive the Holy Spirit. Remember, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We've got the triune God right here in Acts chapter 9. And it says that after he prayed... Saul was baptized, and then he got some food, and he regained his strength. Now notice, Saul's conversion is very simple. It doesn't say anything about Saul praying a prayer. Um, It would almost pass us by if we didn't realize that this is the sovereign hand of the living God moving into Saul's life. And in that moment, when Ananias comes in, His blindness is taken away. What a metaphor, right? John chapter 9, 
I was once blind, but now I see. That's what the blind man said to the Pharisees who were inquiring as to how all this could be. I don't know how or who did all this. All I know is I was blind and now I see. Jesus has come as a light into the world that blind men may see, that blind people may see. There is a spiritual blindness all over our world. And until or unless you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you also are spiritually blind. And I love how the text says that when Ananias prayed over him, something like scales fell from his eyes. His eyes were open. The metaphor is Jesus was now front and center in Saul's life. He was a changed man. Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Because understanding God's big plans for you doesn't happen until you do. I've met a lot of people in my life who, who want to know all the plan before they surrender their life. And that's not the way God works. He says, you've got to surrender to me and then you'll know the plan. He's not going to show us one before the other. We need to surrender our life and follow Jesus. And then the plan is unfolded. In fact, we are compelled into the plan. That's the beauty of what we see here. So from the first perspective, Saul's transformation we see that recognizing or discovering God's big plans for us starts the moment we believe in him, the moment we surrender our lives. But there's something else here. We're going to change gears and look at Ananias for just a minute. And we looked at Saul's transformation. Let's look at Ananias's hesitation. I love how it tells us in the text that when Ananias hears from the Lord, and he's so responsive. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, verse 11. There's a guy there who's blind and he is praying and you need to lay your hands on him to restore his sight. <laughs> now, I love Ananias because he's a lot like all of us, isn't he? Ananias says, uh, wait, Lord, uh, have you heard about this guy? You know who you're talking about here? You're talking about Saul. You're talking about the one who is known in the Christian world as taking Christians to judgment, taking them before the Sanhedrin, possibly putting them to death, at least having them beaten or somehow persecuted. You want me to go to that guy? He's here in Damascus to carry out this work. I think I, think I would be shaking in my boots too. And I love how God just sort of lets Ananias you know, go with his little rant. And then God just responds like, are you done? Basically, go. <laughs> I've chosen this man, Saul, as my chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the Gentile world and to all the kings and to the house of Israel. Get up and go. And I'll show him what he'll have to suffer for my name too. And we'll get to all that in just a minute. Ananias, I, I'm so thankful for Ananias's that even amidst their fear, carried out what God told them to do. When they hear God's voice, they actually do what God tells them to do. I'm grateful for the youth pastor that came to the church, the little Baptist church that I was in, and he wasn't that much older than me. He was a newlywed, and I'm sure he had lots of fears. He was moving from Southern California up. He didn't know anybody in our church, and he was starting his ministry. And dear Miles, bless his heart, I'm sure he had fears in his heart. I didn't know about those fears. But now looking back in my life, oh, I can understand the fears he would have had. But he followed God's call. And through his life, my life was changed. And through his life, many others' lives, lives were changed. 
Praise God for Ananias. You know, sometimes we think about great people that have influenced many for the kingdom of God, and we forget about the Ananiases, the people that sort of stood in the gap, the people that kind of bridged the gap and, and made a bridge and reached out. Are you an Ananias? Am I an Ananias? I hope we're the ones that say, yes, Lord, I'll go do it. But here's the problem. We have a tendency to let our apprehensions dictate the level of our commitment or the level of our involvement in God's plans. We sort of hedge back. We sort of hold back. And that's what we do. We're kind of like Jonah more than Ananias, I think. Jonah, remember, Jonah chapter 1, God tells Jonah, go and preach against the city of Nineveh. Preach repentance to the city of Nineveh. And it says in verse 3 of Jonah chapter 1, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and went to a place headed toward Tarshish. If you look at a map, Jonah actually goes the, the absolute opposite direction from where God told him to go. Now, we need to be Ananiases that actually do what God tells us to do. Because when that happens, we become people like Romans 10, 15 talks about, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. You got beautiful feet? Well, feet really aren't all that attractive most of the time, right? But God says that you've got beautiful feet when you use your feet to run with the gospel, run with the truth, run with the message that God has for his people. By the way, if you feel apprehensive in your life, you're not alone. You're looking at someone who's had more apprehensions in his life than you could probably imagine. I know a lot of you look at me, you know, Larry the pastor, Larry the confident one, Larry the bold, courageous guy that gets out there on the front edge of things. And you know, by the grace of God, I've been placed in some beautifully unique situations. But truth be told, when I've been called to do things that God's called me to do, Deep down inside, I'm, I'm shaken in my boots a lot. There's a lot of fears that I've had to overcome in my life. So I take courage from scriptures like 2 Timothy 4.2 that says, preach the word in season and out of season, when it's comfortable and when it's not comfortable. I love that. I love 1 Peter 3.15. Always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within you. And I love uh, Colossians 3.5 that says, you know, be careful how you live around outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. So if you're apprehensive today, kind of get over it in a way. Uh, you're like Ananias, you're like Pastor Larry, and you're like anyone else who's been called of God into the big plan of life. So I'm going to ask you another question right now, and that is, what are you apprehensive toward doing? What is the tension point in your life today? And that would be a great little discussion point for you to think about, maybe with people around, like what is God nudging you and maybe even compelling you to do that you're not sure about? Um, I, I was scared to go into ministry. I knew God had called me into it, but wow, I was heading on a trajectory toward being a firefighter. I had no thought of becoming a pastor and suddenly my whole life was changed. There were apprehensions there. Apprehensions of leaving my home church and going to another church in the South Bay where I was a youth pastor and nobody knew me. Same kind of thing I just described in the youth pastor that came to our church. And then in 1980, coming to Three Crosses and becoming a youth pastor here and all the transitions of my ministry of going from a youth pastor into a young adults pastor, into a young families pastor, into the families pastor and into an associate role and then becoming the senior pastor of this church and now in a different role. And every single one of those phases, there's been fears. 
There's fears today. God's been nudging me toward uh, the whole issue of race reconciliation. I've been working with pastors in our area, particularly pastors of color. And I'm, I'm scared half the time because I know when I talk to my brothers and sisters of color, I fear I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'm going to put my foot in my mouth. I'm not going to convey what I'm trying to say in my heart. I'm wanting to understand. I'm learning that there's a lot of racism in our country. And I'm learning that there's, unfortunately, a lot of racism in the church and even the history of the church. I've been reading things that have made me just literally sick to my stomach in terms of the the background of Christianity in our country and how complicit we were in treating our brothers of color and sisters of color. And so God's been moving me into a, a role and it's just part of my role, but it's something that's been passionate for me and yet I'm scared to death and I've got emotion in my heart about it because I'm tired of seeing people hurt and people who feel marginalized for the color of their skin. I want to be a bridge. I want to be a change agent. I want to be someone that stands in the gap. And yet, you know, I feel the tension there. I feel the tension sometimes around people that look like me and I even feel the tension about among people that are of color that realize that I stumble over the things I'm trying to say. Well, I'm getting maybe a little into the weeds here, but I want us to understand that if you're going to follow God's plan, if you're going to see God's big plan for your life, you've got to get past the apprehensions that are keeping you from getting there. Discovering His big plans starts the moment you surrender to Him. But living in those big plans is going to mean dealing with the apprehensions. Which brings me to the last thing that I see in this text. And it's the perspective of another character in the text. It's not Saul. It's not Ananias. It's God himself. And what I want to say in this little section is that God's big plans are really more about how he chooses to use us than what it will cost us to follow him. How he chooses to use us and what it will cost us to follow him. That's the perspective I get from what God says to Ananias here in verse 16. He says, go, he is my chosen instrument, verse 15 actually, to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Listen. The Bible has a lot to say about us, but the Bible isn't about us. It's about a boundless God. He is the main character in all the narrative of Scripture. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, it is all about and really only about the glory and sovereignty of a God who is redeeming a people unto himself. So when you're thinking about God's big plans for you, don't fall into the trap that modern evangelicalism oftentimes sets for us unwittingly. And that is that we start thinking that God's big plans are really just synonymous with our big plans. That God is really all about just helping us achieve what we want to achieve the big promotion, the place in life, where we want to live, the kind of bank account we'll have. God, you're all about making my dreams come true. 
That's unfortunately a lie that is being propagated on many what we would call evangelical fronts today. But it's not biblical. When that happens in our lives, God becomes more like a life coach than our sovereign God. So let me ask you a question. Is God your life coach? Or is he Lord of your life? Is Jesus your life coach? Jesus, I need you to come along. You know, you've seen the bumper sticker. You know, Jesus is, is the co-pilot. You know, that's, that's a wrong sentiment. Unfortunately, it's the way a lot of us live our lives. I just bring Jesus along to kind of coach me to get where I want to go. God's whole purpose is to get me where I want to go. Now, I know I'm being a little forceful in this, but this is, this is critical to our understanding of the gospel. The Bible says a lot about us, but it's not about us. It's about Him. It's about God. And I love the fact that in verse 16, we have this picture, verses 15 and 16, of God's expectation. And God's expectation is this. No, I'm going to choose you to go and be a, a, a messenger of my, of my word, of my gospel, and I'm going to show you what you're going to suffer for it. Now, think about Saul. Saul uh, changed literally the world we're living in. He brought the gospel to the whole Roman Greco world. Uh, Saul uh, traveled. Some scholars believe that he traveled over 10,000 miles in his lifetime. Of course, some of that was on boat. A lot of that was walking and caravanning. Can you imagine 10,000 miles? He writes 13 of the 27 New Testament books that we have. He spoke to countless tens of thousands, maybe more than that in his lifetime. I think we can safely say that the Apostle Paul had truly one of the most dramatic ministries in the entire world. But you're saying, yeah, but that's the Apostle Paul. I mean, who are we, right? I mean, does Jesus expect us to be like the Apostle Paul? Well, listen to me. Maybe our calling and the big plans God has for us are not going to be as dramatic as the Apostle Paul, but they're no less important and no less critical to the mission. Think about what Jesus said. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28, 19. In John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. In the mission that God the Father sent to me, sent me into, so I'm sending you into my mission, Jesus said. That's absolutely amazing. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. I read passages like that, and I say, wow, maybe my vision is a little small. Because when I see how big God is and what he's calling me into, it's no less impactful and even dramatic as the Apostle Paul. He's calling us to be men and women who will change our world. You know, in recent weeks, we've lost a couple of amazing people that had a vision of God in their life. I think of uh, Ravi Zacharias, the prince of apologetics, who traveled the world preaching the truth of God's word in a defensible argument against all the objections of every philosophy and every world religion with class, with dignity, with power. Oh, Ravi Zacharias went home to be with the Lord, died of cancer. I think of J.I. Packer, who just, I think, this past week, 93 years old, 
His seminal work, Knowing God. Amazing work, wasn't it? If you've not read it, you should. Blending the beautiful doctrine of God with the power of relationship with God in knowing Him and, and loving Him and being in relationship. Hundreds of thousands of people read his books. I think of John Lewis, who, our American congressman who just passed away, he was a defender of civil rights. He marched with Martin Luther King Jr. He was known for saying that sometimes it's just, you got to get into a little, he called good trouble. <laughs> he was a bold advocate for civil rights and he was a preacher. He preached his first sermon when he was not yet 16 years of age. All of these men had a God-entranced vision in their life that propelled them, compelled them to take the message, the message that God had put in their hearts to the people of this world. God is expecting us to do the same. God is expecting you and me. Where the Bible does focus on us, it usually has more about to do with what it will cost us to follow and specifically to follow Jesus. I love that in verse 16. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, I, I know when I read that, some of you are like, oh, that's not good news. I don't know if I want that. Somehow we've left off of the gospel message to people that there will be suffering in the offering. If we're going to follow Christ, in fact, Paul said it this way in in 2 Timothy uh, 3.12, he said, For anyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. In Matthew 24.9, Jesus said, You will be hated and persecuted and put to death in my name. You will be hated on account of my name throughout all the nations. That doesn't sound like good PR work to me. <laughs> but that's the message that Jesus gave. It's the message that you and I must embrace, that if we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to suffer. We're in a season right now during this pandemic where we don't know where the world is going, actually. We don't know how close it is that Jesus is going to return. And yet we see the, the tide rising. We see the, the hate rising everywhere around us. And I think we're a little naive if we think somehow that we as believers in Christ are going to escape that. And not that we're saying, yeah, bring it on. None of us really like to suffer. But the message of the gospel is that if you're going to follow Jesus, you will, you will suffer. And Jesus made this clear to the apostle as he brought him into a place of faith. But you know, here's the beautiful news. No matter what it costs us, no matter what we suffer for the name of Jesus, isn't it beautiful to know that it will be worth it? It will be worth it. And I've been just thinking over scriptures this past week. I think of what Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8. He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And now there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, whom the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing, who have longed for his appearing. Is that you? I like what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. He said, For I consider our present sufferings not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. 
Oh my goodness. And then finally, I've been meditating on 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 and 18, where Paul says, he says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we focus not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. It will be worth it. A dear sister in faith, Terry, went home to be with the Lord just days ago. Terry struggled for three years with her battle with ALS. And I remember sitting down with Terry and her husband, her family, just shortly after her diagnosis. And I remember her telling me in my office, she said, you know, I don't know if God's going to heal me. I hope he will. I'm going to ask him. But, but actually, my only prayer is going to be that throughout this experience, Christ would be glorified in my life. That was her prayer from the very start. God may heal me, but I want him glorified. That's all I really want. And I watched her life for three years as her family watched, as our church family watched her life, continually pointing people to Jesus, never complaining once, never in her struggle. And there must have been struggle because she lost every aspect of her body. She came to the place where she could only communicate with her eyes. And then even after that, she couldn't anymore. I prayed with her just a week or so before she passed. And as I prayed, I can still hear her gentle, sweet moaning as if she was saying, I'm soon to be with my Lord. I'm soon to be home. What a glorious thought. She's home. She's home. And all this suffering was worth it. So, what are your plans? Are they going to be God's plans? Are they going to be your plans? And when you see a boundless God, you can't help, we can't help to be compelled into His great plans for our life. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for bringing us into your great plans. And thank you for using this text today to remind us that it all starts with knowing you and following you. And if there's somebody listening right now that has never stepped over that line, give them the faith to believe right now. And may the journey begin for them. And help us, Lord, in our hesitation and our apprehensions. And help us, Lord, in the times of suffering to keep pointing back to you. We love you, Lord. Bless our church, this church family. Bless our community with the beautiful message of the gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.